Hello. You're on with Nick and Fiona. It was the Star Wars of its day. It was the, f- the first blockbuster. Hi, and welcome to The Playlist. I'm Fiona Williams, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Bassine. Hey, Nick. Hello. Fiona, it's Black History Month in America, February, and here in Australia, NITV has put together a justice season where they've got a bunch of documentaries that will illuminate, educate on the subject of race and justice. Documentaries like I Am Not Your Negro and Birth of a Movement, which is about the release of the infamously racist movie Birth of a Nation. Oh, yeah. And also, as part of this conversation, um, Black Panther also happens to be out, which is very much relevant when you're talking about black representation in movies. Exactly. So there's a lot to get through this episode. There's a lot. Yes. A lot of meat on these bones. Yes. Maybe if we start with I'm Not Your Negro, which, as you say, screened as part of uh, NITV's Justice Season and is now available to stream at SBS On Demand. So this, of course, is Raul Peck's Oscar-nominated documentary, nominated last year, unfortunately didn't win, but uh, which illuminates the beautiful words of James Baldwin. They speak to a manuscript that he never completed, but it illustrates his gorgeous words about America's complex, conflicted awful attitudes to race and his own relationship to racial politics. If any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered surely have nothing whatever against Negroes. That's really not the question. Really a kind of apathy and ignorance. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In America, I was free only in battle, never free to rest. We need to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. They needed us to speak the cartoon. And now they don't need us anymore. Now they don't need us, they're going to kill us all off. I think the opening scene of I'm Not Your Negro really speaks to this, where James Baldwin is a guest on the Dick Cavett show and Cavett asks him if we should feel hope or despair about race relations in America. And, um, you know, as he's stumbling over how to ask the question to James Baldwin, um, Baldwin smiles, that magnificent smile. Yeah. And just <laughs> like kind of just says, if we can't actually speak about race, how are we going to deal with the issues we're trying to talk about? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of very um, upsetting, troubling um, things that the documentary gets into. I mean, I'm care a lot about, you know, TV and movies. And so I, the portrayal of black people on screen and how it affects young black kids watching that versus watching people around them, how they think about themselves and each other. Yeah. That was, it's very powerful in this movie. But then I was also, there's also a, a feeling of kind of optimism in places um, I mean, things seem pretty bleak, but he's pretty insistent about how he doesn't think of white people as the devil, mm-hmm. like um, the Nation of Islam did in the 60s. And so it, there's a searching quality to it. There, He's trying to understand and figure out and help other people understand where he, and I guess a lot of people like him, are coming from. Yeah. It's hard to speak to the way 
the doco tells the story because it's using his own words from a manuscript that never saw the light of day and it tells the story of America through the lives of Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and all three men were James Baldwin's contemporaries and friends. And so it's using his own writings. It cuts in his appearances on panel shows because he was quite a frequent talking head of the 60s. And it's beautiful and articulate, but quite distressing as well. It's very hard to speak to the way it makes its points. Well, there's there's just so much going on at any given moment. There is, like you say, the the clips of him on talk shows, the voiceover done by... Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel Jackson. In a very underplayed yeah, a very understated. Yeah, at you first can, you don't realise You can barely him. tell. Yeah, it's him. Yeah, it's not him. He's not being Samuel L. Jackson. He's he's providing the voice to he's accompany not, the writings. It's not snakes on a plane, Samuel Jackson. So there's that. And then there's footage of movies from the 30s and 40s and everything kind of comes together. Sometimes there's just jazz. So it all comes together and you really have to focus and it gives you so much to think about. I agree. This is not one that you can second screen. No. <laughs> so I think if, you know, if you find yourself drifting, you really should catch up as well because it's it keeps you on your toes and it sort of makes you lean forward as a viewer, which I love about it. It demands your attention, but it, yeah, it's fascinating. But it's not hard work. It's not no, like no, it's no. hard work. Yeah, exactly. It's not homework, but it's you, you have to pay attention to figure out what he's talking about, what the movie's trying to say, and how, it, how it's all coming together. Mm. It's got a rhythm, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yes. And you need to... It takes a little while to settle into it, but once you're there, it's... I love it. And because this was nominated for an Oscar last year, and it was a strong field of documentary contenders last year, so it, also, it lost out to the OJ documentaries. Which, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and also Ava DuVernay's 13th, that was nominated as well. And Life Animated, which is great too. But particularly the, the three strongest films I thought were, and they all speak to each other really, Ava DuVernay's documentary about the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. And again, looking at race and how that amendment, which deals with um, if you've been incarcerated, you are denied, you can't vote. And looking at how that can be applied to prevent black people and just people of colour generally to have access to vote. For those who are unfamiliar, James Baldwin was a prominent writer in the 50s and 60s. He was an early adopter of a certain kind of angry voice when writing about race. He's kind of firm and confrontational about some of these huge problems and blind spots in, in American conversation when talking about race. Like his contemporaries were Malcolm X and mm. Martin Luther King Jr. and Medgar Evers, so the people who are changing the conversation. So he was in that group. I've read one of his books, The Fire Next Time. It's great. It's really visceral and emotional, like the movie. Mm. Um, and and like we say and like we see, he was a regular on panel shows in the where there were a lot more talk shows. So imagine now if it was your Jimmy Fallon's or your um, maybe not Fallon, <laughs> but say Colbert. You know, I always was, think about who the parallels are in to these kinds of people and the leaders of a movement. Mm. It's hard. It's hard to make parallels because things are so different now. I mean, I guess like the Tana black Hazy Coates maybe or. Yeah, he's a very prominent writer. Yes, he's writing 
very confrontational, controversial stuff that mm. gets people riled up. Well, urgent writing, really. Yes. I mean, yeah, they're not angry writing, but they're they're calling people on yes. the circumstances. And that's the thing I, as well with James Baldwin that comes across like he wasn't an angry man on these panels. He was no, playful. Yeah, and funny. And, and, yeah. yeah, very funny and erudite. And the battle was in the language and he looks thoroughly engaging. And yeah, it's probably would be a podcast now, to be honest. He'd probably have a, <laughs> probably yeah. be a podcast guest. But yeah. Uh, you could have a very lengthy conversation and, and tease out some some really interesting ideas. Um, by the by, he recently in the news for that Quincy Jones, that incredible Quincy Jones interview yeah. with Bob, um, as being a paramour of Marlon Brando. Was he in there too? Yeah, yeah. Quincy Jones <laughs> yeah, knows where all the bodies are buried. That was Good amazing. Lord. <laughs> but yeah, none of that's tackled in this. Obviously, <laughs> no. it's very directed <laughs> about his um his incredible views on race and the urgency of his writing. There's no clip of it specifically in um, I'm Not Your Negro, but a lot of the kinds of movies that I'm Not Your Negro pulls clips out of is are similar to Birth of a Nation. Nice segue. Yes, very much. We're talking, of course, about D.W. Griffith's 1915 incendiary film about the Civil War, but about the birth of the Ku Klux Klan. Incredibly racist film that unfortunately also pioneered a few film techniques. It's in this category of movies that was made at a certain time by a certain type of person that is essential to film history because of the techniques it pioneered and because so many movies after it owe it yeah, a huge exactly. debt. This is at the birth of cinema. So yeah. there's in Birth of a Nation there is sort of the foundation of intercutting action with response, um, close-ups, you know, like sort of this is where it started in this film. That film is also crazily racist <laughs> and it is very much a document of attitudes at the time it's made by a Southerner whose dad fought for the Confederacy and it is still used as a recruitment video by David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan. It puts everyone in a very uncomfortable position <laughs> because it needs to be celebrated might be the wrong word, but it needs to be acknowledged. And if you learn anything about the history of movies, it's always in there. It has yeah. to be, but it's also really terrible. And to watch this film which you can do at SBS On Demand, you absolutely have to watch it in tandem with a documentary about it called Birth of a Movement, yes. which is also at SBS On Demand. The first blockbuster film revered as a cinematic masterpiece. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, he's trying to have an effect, and one of the things you feel most strongly is fear. Exposed as a device for propaganda. Use a recruiting tool by the Klan. One of the efforts was to try to get it shut down. to see the birth of a nation? People look at this film and they say, this is what we are fighting against. Birth of a Movement does an incredible job of putting the movie in context. It'll give you the film history and talk about why why it was so revolutionary for that reason. But also it goes into detail that I, I didn't know about when it describes the moment in history, when the movie came out, the reaction that it was getting from, um, well, from racists and from <laughs> people who, and from the NAACP who, was, who were trying to ban it and how there were riots in Boston, all that 
I don't, I don't know how widely known it is that yeah, exactly. people were upset about it. Very much so. And it's an adaptation of a popular book called The Klansman that was adapted into a film and became a very popular film. So Birth of the Nation, it was the Star Wars of its day, kind of. It was a like blockbuster. It was, yeah, it was, it the, was. the first blockbuster. It was. It was shown in the White House, had the support of Woodrow Wilson, the president. So The New York Times called it poignant and stirring in yeah. 1930. Oof. Yeah, and Woodrow Wilson has claimed to have said that it was history written in lightning. So, you know, it wasn't an indie release. It, this was the film of the moment. And the title of the documentary is Birth of a Movement, and that movement is the civil rights movement because it, it does draw the connection between the way that the protests were staged and the two-pronged kind of attempt to limit the damage that this film was sort of making in the community and, and it's representation of African-Americans, it lay the foundations of the way that civil rights protests started. So it's kind of the birth of the civil rights movement. Because of the release of the movie, like in the civil rights movement 40 years later, certain kinds of people or leaders sprung up, you mm. know, to to hold demonstrations, um, make speeches. Mm. Um, so William Monroe Trotter was a big name. Um, he was a big part of protesting the movie. And it's that kind of style of protest that developed into the civil rights movement. Yeah, sort of the legal attempt to limit it and also the physical boots Cultural, on the ground trying to yeah. yeah get people marching and out, out on the streets about this. So that was that kind of, that was where it sort of started in protest of this crazily racist film. As a side note, one of the, I mean, obviously it's a kind of a minor detail, but um, William Monroe Trotter, who was protesting the movie, he was debating Booker T. Washington mm who had softer, let's say, views on some of this stuff. Mm. And um, someone threw cayenne pepper on the stage and everybody was sneezing. That's not used so much as a tactic anymore, no, is it? No, uh, not as far as I know. <laughs> Although that was really interesting. And there's lots of stuff like that in this mm. documentary. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. I it's fascinating. It. Yeah. And also going back to watch Birth of a Nation again, I mean, as we say, it is held up as, as a text for early cinema, I watched it at uni. I remember in my film yeah, studies class same. we watched excerpts of it. I don't remember watching the entire three hours of it. but um, Yeah, I don't yeah, remember sitting through three hours, but it I def- – Yeah. Yeah. We didn't go to uni together, obviously. But, yeah, no. I, th- I think we probably watched excerpts of here's where the first close-up or, you know, maybe yes. here's where the intercut of action on the battlefields, what's happening at home. Yeah. Um, the film. So <laughs> revisiting it. It is a three-hour film. It – Starts with the Civil War and families on either side of the conflict and ends with the Ku Klux Klan riding in to save the South from black rule in the Reconstruction era. So it's heavily critical of the idea of reconstructing the South. There is lots of blackface. There are lots of actors in blackface in the foreground. Um, There are some African-American actors in the background, but the most infamous shots and scenes are of white actors in blackface in the foreground um, and that character attempts to seduce a white woman who in turn throws herself off a cliff rather than be wooed by a black man. And it's very much a pro-KKK film. There is use of Wagner. Yeah, a lot of really bad stereotypes are trotted out in this film. Uh, so D.W. Griffith, his film, you know, it was a successful film but it sparked these protests his next film, Intolerance, you know, is, is seen as a bit of a reflection back on on what happened with Birth of a Nation. Well, he was put out by the negative reaction to the movie. Mm. And he, I guess, um, 
maybe he didn't think of himself yeah. as a racist or he just... Well, I think he thought he was just making a contemporary film about the war and about attitudes at home. And that's the thing with this film. You do need to read it as a, it's very much of its time. And these weren't sentiments that were out of the ordinary. So he was making a film about the I South, having been from the South, having had his dad be a Confederate soldier. I guess he thought he wasn't making negative statements with the movie. I think maybe he thought his perspective was kind of benign. Mm. And while you know, incredibly infantilizing and patronizing. He thought that, well, there's good black people and they should be kept in there in the servant class. And mm. and the problem is when you try to mix the races, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just saying, don't mix the races. Mm. Don't let people, black people become successful. I'm going to make intolerance to show how intolerant everybody's being <laughs> of my movie. About my, my little movie. <laughs> As a historical document, it's mm. very interesting it because- after the Civil War, the South wasn't letting go of its attitudes, even though they were legally now and uh, militarily forced to abolish slavery. So Reconstruction was decidedly unwelcome. And the idea is that you can't just let black people go, go free and do whatever they want, because then they start sleeping with our women mm -hmm. and... Like the worst thing for this movie is for a black and a white yeah. person to be together because the most evil characters are the mixed race people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of a moustache twirling, you know, snidely whiplash. Yeah, yeah. That, that is the personification of a quote unquote half breed here. Like, I don't like that phrase, obviously. But in the, in the film, indeed. Yes. Yes. <sighs> um, yeah. That is the worst incarnation of what can happen. So, it, yeah, he's, he's the villain of the piece here. But surely even at that time, the perspective that a bunch of white dudes with hoods on, on horses, coming after black people, like, would you think that that's the best way to go? That that's the, be that's the best thing you could come up with in a movie? Like, it's not that, co that's not that complicated or nuanced, really. <laughs> I don't think anyone is calling Birth of a Nation nuanced in any way, shape or form. Uh, so yes. D.W. Griffith made something like 500 movies <laughs> and they're not. They're Apparently, they're all, they were all uh, flops, except for this one, right? I think it does need to see, be seen to be believed. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you watch it with the best of intentions and you read it as the historical document that it is and you absolutely watch the documentary that accompanies it yes. to understand Which would you see impact, first? That's a tricky question. Yeah. I think I watched the film first. Yeah. Well, I did. I know I did. <laughs> but I... If you're going in cold, maybe watch the doc first. I don't know. Watch both. <laughs> well, it depends. Because if you're the kind of person that can sit through a three-hour movie, then you should watch the movie first, I think. But if you feel like you're not going to make it, but we also have to make sure that everybody watches both of these things <laughs> in their entirety. It's our no, jobs. It's, uh, well, see, the worst aspects don't occur until the second half of the film. The first half is right. really a... Civil War starts up. There's two nice families. Yeah. Why can't we all be friends? And then, good Lord, it's afterwards and it's Reconstruction and it all then kicks in after the, the war. So, right. you know, if you want to see the worst aspects, they're well into the film. It all makes for very, for fascinating viewing. It really does. Wherever you start, wherever your starting point is, it's interesting. I would just say absolutely watch both. Yeah. Fast forwarding about it. Well, over a hundred years, we come to the latest 
Marvel blockbuster, Black Panther. You're telling me that the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit? Why don't you ask him yourself? Because he's right outside. <laughs> Bingo. My king. Stop it. The Black Panther lives. A war is coming. That's damn calm. Watch me do my. I hope you're ready, bro. I'm just getting started. Let's have some fun. So Black Panther uh, first appeared in Captain America Civil War a few years ago. It was very exciting. He was jumping around and uh, clawing people. And uh, it was very cool. Played by Chadwick Boseman, who's really good as uh, the character. He first appeared in comic book form in 1966. So then uh, in 73... We're getting into the weeds on the comic book history here. He starred in the series Jungle Action, which kind of became known as the first graphic novel. And so now he's in, he's got his own movie. Mm. And uh, and we saw it. Yes. And like so many um, other Marvel comic book heroes, Black Panther has his own movie. And it takes place still within the Marvel universe, but it's very much uh, its own deal. T'Challa, the Black Panther, returns home to Wakanda, which is a fictional country in Africa, to become the king because his father, who was the previous king, was killed in Captain America Civil War. And now, when you become the king of Wakanda, you become the Black Panther. So he's got the mask on. You get the crown, you get the suit. That's right. Comes with it. It's the deal. Yeah. And the whole story of Wakanda is the tiny country has for centuries been secretly storing and experimenting with vibranium, which uh, is <laughs> because why feels, not? It feels so sophisticated when you <laughs> it say does. it. Thanks very much. Um, which is sort of an alien element that is derived from a fallen meteor. And it, so it's the, why not? And Sounds it's, about right. And so it's an energy source that's also virtually indestructible and it's part of the compound of what goes into making Captain America's shield. So it's it's pretty hot property. But Wakanda keeps it secret from the rest of the world. And That's right. Don't want to share their toys. Exactly. Because it could fall into the wrong hands, etc., yes. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So what do you think Black Panther's about? The potential of vibranium falling into the wrong hands. Yes. And when there's a an American challenger to the throne in the form of Michael B. Jordan... Who has designs on being Black Panther slash the ruler of Wakanda. Everyone's worried that vibranium may fall into his wrong hands. Yes. And what I like about this is he makes some decent arguments. So he's he's not fully realised as a villain. So he's we know where our allegiances lie, but Michael B. Jordan comes along, wants to be the Black Panther as well, has reasons for wanting to share vibranium. Plenty of good reasons. But they're a little ethically dubious if used inappropriately. So I like that element of the film that does, there's not... It's complicated. Yeah, it is very he complicated. Is, he is very sympathetic. Uh, he's a very sympathetic bad guy. He's mm. um, he's only become a bad guy and he's developed this aggressive attitude because the Wakandans... Yeah, yeah, the Wakandans d- did him wrong there's a backstory. earlier. Yeah. I felt it was a little bit ham-fisted, the inclusion of the American storyline. Presumably, 
I don't know, just to not keep the story in Africa and to make it more global and to make it more relevant uh, to American audiences, I suppose. Um, I wasn't that invested in the future of Wakanda to care about as much about these two guys fighting it out. And it seemed like, well, Michael B. Jordan, you know, they, they did nasty things to him. Why not? (laughs) <laughs> Why not let him give him a shot at the throne? Fair enough. And look, response to this film has been frenzied. The idea of it coming, the trailers, the amazing um, black carpet photos of the cast in sort of their interpretations of African royalty outfits. Um, and there was that great meme of the kids who in the classroom who found out they were going to go see it and they were dancing crazily. And it was just there's this massive excitement about the film, which is totally understandable. It's a really positive story, um, fully led by an African-American cast. There's one white guy and it makes a point of the fact that he's, there's this one white guy in there. He gets some few jokes at his expense. And it's they're already rulers. It's not like they have to overcome something to become the rulers. The movie presupposes like they're ruling this country. They've got vibranium. Like Yeah, it's a, it's a positive story from the start. I was expecting really good things from it. Did I love it? Not 100%, no. I'm keen to see another film because I think this one gets a little bogged down in story. It takes a while to get going. There's a couple of fight scenes early on that I didn't think were great and it takes its time to it's settle It's pretty in. slow. It's a bit of a slog to start with, I, I found. All of that stuff that you mentioned is inspiring and wonderful yeah. and it, it's so great when people can get behind something like that and when it can mean a movie, can mean so much yeah. to so many people in, in this kind of way. I, I think that's fantastic. But when you go into a movie with all of that, I I guess it raises your expectations. And then if it doesn't deliver a tremendous cinematic experience, I guess there's a little bit of a letdown there. Yeah. If you're expecting to be blown away, then yeah. The trailer that I watched before going in was... So there's a lot of action, um, which looked okay, but it didn't look revolutionary to me. It didn't look like anything I hadn't seen in any of these other superhero movies, except that it featured um, the Black Panther, who was kind of a new character. Um, But the music over it is Gil Scott Heron's quintessential 60s Black Power revolutionary anthem, The Revolution Would Not Be Televised, over it, as if you were going to get some serious politically angry, confrontational experience like you've never seen before in a superhero movie. But what you actually ended up getting is, well, it's it's a superhero movie, like a lot of other ones. Yes. And so that was a letdown for me. What's I mean, the difference between this and Blade? Um, because I think that people are treating this like it's a much bigger deal ever. than Blade. Sure. And I guess, is it because of... Because it's in the Marvel. Well, Blade was Marvel too. Right. Um, of course, Wesley Snipes is Blade is what we're talking about. But I think especially coming out now where it's so much part of the conversation is the idea of representation. Who's telling the stories? Who's on screen? Like Ryan Coogler directed this who directed Fruitvale Station and also directed Creed um, in the Rocky theme of films, also with Michael B. Jordan, both films. And Marvel movies are such a bigger deal now. So it's... Yeah, but so when Blade came out, what were the expectations? Do you remember? Do you remember if there was... It's funny because Blade hasn't really been mentioned a lot. Like, you know, it has been mentioned, of course. It's not like everyone's forgotten about it, but it's... He's also a half vampire. (laughs) Yeah. That's not really a superhero, is it? (laughs) 
he's definitely, it was based on a comic, yeah. but I don't know if he's a superhero. Maybe that's the distinction. That's why people are a little bit more excited about Black Panther. He's a hero, superhero. Yeah. He pops the suit on and with the aid of vibranium. Yeah. Fighting crime. And it's a, it's a hell of a suit as well. It's quite a snazzy suit in it's this very one. very snazzy. And, I mean, and his support crew as well. There are female warriors here. Um, that is also, yeah, along the representational lines, the movie does a great job of having women in serious fighting roles where they're kicking a bunch of ass all over, well, well, all over the place. <laughs> Quite literally. Uh, yeah, Lupita Nyong'o is a princess uh, who comes in and sort of is, try is he attempts to woo her, but although I think they were an item back in the day. But They've yeah, got a it, history. They do have a history together, of course. And is it Danai Gurira? Yeah. Is the leader of his security detail, really. Uh, it looked like, yeah, like the National Army. Or no, is yeah. it, it's his... It's the they palace, the yeah. Right. Yeah, like the palace guards, Palace really. guard, yeah. Yeah, and also watching the credits, I mean, there are a lot of female heads of department on this film. Yeah. Um, that stood out. So on a lot of levels, this is new territory. And I, all of that is really wonderful, and I, and I can definitely get behind it. I, I just wish it had been a more exciting movie, the story. Mm. I kind of I feel I lost interest kind of halfway through. For It was pretty long. Look, I do think it's maybe a little weak on the story, um, and I was aware of the time dragging, but I, I think it probably is value as a film coming out right now in this environment, especially the value it's going to have to kids, seeing themselves up on screen. I, I don't think that should be understated as well. So I'll give it a break. I do want to see the next one. I'm, I'm keen to see how they where they take this character because it's, it's a good start. I think it could be better. Those are my feelings. So now... Um, we're going to talk about what we've been watching as mm. opposed to the previous bits where we talk about... The four things. <laughs> yeah, we haven't been watching. Apparently, we haven't been watching that. This is what we've been what watching. What else have we been yeah, watching? Yeah, what else? <laughs> what have you been watching? Ah, well, I caught the Australian comedy The Barbecue, which is out in cinemas on the 22nd of February. And full disclosure, I had my doubts. <laughs> it's... It is a broad Australian comedy that I don't always respond to, but there's something to recommend it and I think it's quite telling and important that this didn't come out around the 26th of January because you would expect a film called an Australian broad comedy called The Barbecue might be out around January 26th, but it's not and it kind of is crucial to the story that it's not. It, it's a story of a bit of a whiz behind The Barbecue played by Shane Jacobson. He's sort of the king of the barbecue at home, but there's an unfortunate outbreak of salmonella. He loses his <laughs> reputation with the family, has to redeem himself and sort of gets enlisted to do this barbecue contest. There's a villainous French chef played by Manu Fidel. <laughs> it's got oh. a friend of SBS, Julia Zamiro, in it, uh, is Shane's wife. Magda Jabansky, friend of SBS, soon to be in Mardi Gras. Plays a very hard-nosed Scottish butcher who puts him through his paces. Look, it's it's big and broad, but a couple of laughs in there and a nice message that's quite... I, th I think SBS audiences would quite like it. There's a nice Indigenous-themed element to the story and a nice message about whenever you want to have your party, doesn't actually matter what date you're going to have it on. So I'll just, just put that out there. What have you been watching, Nick? Well, I've been watching In the Fade. Oh, yeah. 
which is a German movie directed by, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Fatih Akin. Yeah. Yep. Uh, starring Diane Kruger as a woman whose husband and child are killed in a an explosion, and um, the Nazis did it. It's um, at various points takes uh, some really big unexpected turns. It feels like one kind of movie for about fifteen minutes, and then turns into a different mm. kind of movie, it, and ultimately is. Tremendously powerful. Diane Kruger is really good in it. Yeah. She kind of carries it. It's her journey. And um, I really like his movies. I really liked Head On, uh, which I've been meaning to revisit. And I really liked um, The Edge of Heaven. And um, I don't know what it is about this guy, but he, he just manages to bring in kind of desperate people um, and just, I don't know, just draws out a tremendous emotional gravity from their experiences. And it, it's really affecting. And, and yeah, I, I really like it. I agree. It, um, I saw it back at the Sydney Film Festival. And this one kind of was a front runner for a foreign language Oscar nomination, which it didn't get. And yeah. I'm quite surprised by it's that. It's a shame. It won the Golden Globe last month. But, um, yeah, she's a grieving widow in it, but so much more in it as yeah. well. And I, I didn't know a lot going in about it. And it's probably best you don't. But, it, uh, yeah, it takes you on a bit of a journey. And I agree with what you say about his other films. And what he also does, he always writes about intercultural relationships as well. So, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's that's what she's in, like her husband is, is Muslim. And they're engrossing and really relatable kind of stories as well. I mean, we've got his other one, Soul Kitchen, at SBS On Demand, which is a comedy, which is kind of a rare one that <laughs> he, he did about, yeah, working in a Greasy Spoon restaurant, which is pretty excellent. So, so yeah, I think In the Fade is great. That's due in cinemas in March 8th. The other thing that I've seen oh. um, is Peter Rabbit. Okay. Now, Peter Rabbit is, um, in addition to being a very likable children's movie, is uh, upsetting a lot of people at the moment over mm. its um, what is described as the bullying of someone with an allergy. If you uh, use the word anaphylaxis, it sounds a lot more severe and um, scary, and it sounds like, well, you shouldn't bully somebody with that kind of disease. And um, What happens? I haven't seen it. So the sort of bad guy, Mr. McGregor, that's his nephew, because the old one kicks <laughs> off at the beginning, do you not know that? Okay. In the Peter Rabbit book, you're not supposed to go in Mr. McGregor's mm -hmm. yard because Mr. McGregor killed Peter Rabbit's father and put him in a pie, mm -hmm. ate him. And so um, Mr. McGregor's nephew takes over the place. He tries to keep the rabbits out of his garden. The rabbits want in, and they use a variety of Home Alone-type tactics to um, get in and to attack Mr. McGregor's nephew. And Mr. McGregor's nephew, had, uh, played by Don McGleason, he is allergic to blackberries. And one of the tactics the rabbits use is um, trying to shoot blackberries into his mouth. Okay. And we're both, we're smiling. It sounds kind of like it might be funny. Mischievous. Yes. Um, well, the Global Anaphylaxis Awareness and Inclusivity Group, it's an Australian group, they uh, created a petition asking Sony Pictures to apologize, uh, saying the scene is socially irresponsible. And I believe they, they did apologize. When um, his allergy is first mentioned, Peter Rabbit, actually played by James Corden, gives a, a monologue about how 
we're all too soft these days and we all have all these allergies and that we shouldn't uh, get all excited about it. Stop using it as a crutch. Oh. And he gets kind of, he goes on this weird monologue, which is, and then he, he says, um, obviously people have serious conditions and, and they need what? to be carefully and you need to make sure they're treated. And he looks into the camera and says, I don't want any letters. You're having me on. No. So it's just very interesting how this is all played out because he said he didn't want letters. They got letters and then they apologized, but they knew that yeah, that's don't at me. That's the that's what happens on Twitter yeah. too. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's really? fascinating. <laughs> the flicking of the blackberries, but if it's a monologue about it too, that's quite strange. I have not seen it, so I can't really comment. It's unusual. I mean, if you think about so that the the group invokes people who have died, obviously mm -hmm. from it can be very serious if not treated properly and everything, and it. So it's hard to say, come on, don't take it so seriously. But at the same time... Well, see, in all of the reporting about it, I've only seen the reference to the flicking of the blackberries. I haven't... No one's... Not that I've seen, but in truth, I haven't gone down a uh, rabbit hole about it. Uh, I didn't mean that. I I haven't seen Fun any intended. mention... No, it wasn't. I'll, I haven't seen any mention of the monologue. I, I would think that's probably more what people are... But that's just a weird outrage bait, is it? What people are upset about is that it supposedly teaches children that it's okay to bully someone with an allergy. The flicking or the monologue beforehand? I've only seen reference to the flicking. Seriously do a monologue about it? Yeah. It's amazing. Is it meant to be funny? Yeah. Yeah. Everything is meant to be funny. I need to see it. Peter That's Rabbit, nice. at least in this incarnation, is a um, bit of a wiseacre. Do we have that term in this country? Wiseacre? No, all right, never mind. Um, he's a, a wisecracker. Yeah, he's a smartass. He's um, he raps, doesn't he? No, there oh. is a rap. Okay, but it's not him. It's a kind of. See, I don't love James Corden, so that's a bit of a uh... <laughs> the deal breaker. Not a deal breaker. I will watch it. Will you? Eventually. Okay. There's others on my list before I'll watch it. But I like to see most things, so I will get to it. But it's lower down the list because of James Corden, I have to be honest. I think that like, there are very weird moments, which I appreciated as an adult, the breaking the fourth wall and everything. The, the kids don't care about that stuff. But there were things like that that I think the adults appreciated. I mean, I, I took my child and he mm. loved it. He was cracking up throughout the whole thing because it's a very physical, like I mentioned, Home Alone is a lot of mm. falling down, Pat surprise stuff, and, mm. hitting you in the face, a lot of that kind of thing, which the kids love. But I, I just wonder about this, this allergy business because it's, it's just a curious thing. I don't, I don't want to diminish what people go through when they have allergies, mm. especially if, if it can be serious. But at the same time, I'm thinking, all right, come on. Know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. I guess it's, it's because he's, it's something we don't have any control over. You're born with these things. And so making or trying to take advantage of somebody with that, or I'm just trying to think of what makes it so outrageous. Well, if you're a parent who grapples with these issues and is terrified that someone's going to flick a peanut at your child, or I know someone who can't be in the same room as capsicum, like that is a 
terrifying way to view the world of what are the threats in the immediate vicinity of my child. I understand they're upset about it. I also understand it's a plot point in a film, but it triggers them about their deepest fears about the mortality of the children. So I get that. Without getting too into the story, it's also a part of the character's evolution. I mean, he learns mm -hmm. not to be such a jerk Mm -hmm. eventually. And that, it's a kind of a sure. jerk thing to do, right? Very much so. And so eventually he learns that that kind of stuff isn't nice. Mm-hmm. Everyone, all of us, has something that causes personal pain that someone else can't relate to. If we have to be aware of all of that constantly when we tell stories, are we going to be able to tell stories eventually? You know, again, heart goes out to everybody who, for God's sake, who has lost somebody because of anaphylactic mm. shock or whatever. Mm. I mean, that's horrible. Mm. Also, he is an animated character. If you're the foundation devoted to to this, you have every right to of take course. issue with yes, it. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, it's a, there was a Guardian piece about it and I think it's found its own steam on the internet and whatnot because of the idea of it. And, of course, it feeds into questions about this, like have we gone too far, my goodness, think of the children, all that kind of. It keeps the internet thriving. It's it's just clickbait and it, it, it's going to get people going to their corners on this and... These rabbits also rig an electric fence to electrocute people over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not a lesson I would want to teach my children either. Also, the moment comes and goes. I mean, aside from that weirdly long monologue, they pop the... They flick the blueberry in his mouth. He takes out his pen, stabs himself, and it goes away. Mm -hmm. The message is keep your pen handy. Yeah. So they could just as easily have not included it also. It's not It's not a huge... It's a moment in a movie of exaggerated schemes and hijinks and... Yes. It, like Home Alone. I mean, they're trying to kill a kid. <laughs> they're trying to get yeah. back at a they're kid. They're trying to so murder that child. So it's meant to be exaggerated. It's meant to be heightened for comic effect. So maybe let's take it in that context. That's sort of what I, what I left feeling. But I, I, again, heart goes out. Absolutely. And is the movie any good? I, I laughed. I think there are some jokes for the adults, and I liked those. And but a lot of it is is very kid friendly. It's very um, physical, and um, my child enjoyed it. So that that's all that matters to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Rabbit is a little way off. That comes out on the twenty second of March. Well, that's about it for our show. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Learned a lot. Said a lot. Sang. There was a moment where we sang. I think we cut that bit out. Uh, please get onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. Say something nice. Put some stars on there. All right. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at film at sbs.com.au or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. SBS Movies. And you can get in touch with me on Twitter at anything but Fifi. I'm on Twitter at Nick Bassine. At, at Nick Bassi. Okay. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.